Today's episode is brought to you by Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Daniel Nielsen, Professor of Economics at uh, Bard College at Simons Rock. Dan, great to see you. I want to talk all about your very exciting new paper that you did for the Bank for International Settlements, co-written with Iñaki Aldosoro and uh, Perry Merling, who has been on the show, is called On Par, A Money View of Stablecoins. And you take a very serious and rigorous analysis of Stable coins, and you make a lot of comparisons uh, to them. The the most one that comes to mind the most is you compare them to euro dollar deposits or offshore deposits. So let's let's start there. Well, well, first of all, what what motivated you to, to to write the paper, and then secondly, how did this comparison of stable coins to euro dollar deposits how did that come into your mind, and why do you think it's an apt analogy? Sure. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me back on the show. Great to be here. We, you know, people who read my, my newsletter soon parted know that I'm uh, interested in thinking about, about crypto. I'm, I'm not a, a crypto evangelist by any means, but I also think it's full of interesting questions and monetary innovation. And I, and I like to dig into some of these questions. I've thought about stable coins before, especially around some of the, the, the moments when crypto and stable coins made big headlines, which maybe we'll come back to a little later on. And I, on the newsletter, I do that in sort of a you know, piece-by-piece way, one, one short post at a time. My friends and colleagues, Perry Merling and Iñaki Abasora that you mentioned, had started a conversation about stablecoins with the aim of writing a bigger paper, more of an academic style. Iñaki is a staff economist at the BIS. So, so we were kind of thinking of the BIS audience. Let's try to speak to regulators, central bankers, and the people in that community who, who can sort of think about financial issues in that way. And let's talk about stablecoins, which are uh, a monetary problem. They're a, a money-like, a money-like claim. They they're supposed to trade at a fixed price of one, like like dollars or bank deposits. And but they're also a crypto token. They they exist on blockchains, and and they're definitely part of this wave of of crypto innovation that has played out over the last over the last few years with with sort of rises and falls, you know. And in these days. Obviously, we've seen a lot of a lot of downward movement in the crypto space, but then maybe some maybe some resurgence in the last few months. So he said, "There's something interesting here. It's definitely money that we're talking about." So we have a lot of between the three of us, three very different perspectives. All three of us brought brought certainly a lot of shared understanding, but also some pretty different backgrounds to the paper. And and we said, "Let's see what we could say about stablecoins that draws on financial history and draws on our understanding of non-crypto finance." And let's see what we can say about stablecoins that that might add something to this to this discussion because there really is something to to figure out and the story is definitely not over yet. I'm trying to add something, but 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 you know the news will continue to play out and we really don't know exactly where they're at. We made some progress on figuring out on figuring out where we stand and what we think, and that's what we tried to share in this paper. I think the underlying uh, connection is the idea of par one dollar here being worth one dollar there. One dollar of offshore euro dollar deposit in Japan or Belgium is worth the onshore deposit at J.P. Morgan in in New York City. A similar concept in stablecoins. One dollar of a circle, you know, is worth or should be worth a, a dollar of a U.S. Treasury. And there, the link, you know, is quite. I believe they are audited. It is quite connected. There are other stablecoins, Tether, where they also claim to have those assets. Your paper, interesting, remains agnostic on that claim. There are some some questions about 
you know, they, they don't have an audit, what is going on there, but you don't really address that. And then there's the, the, the there are also stable coins like DAI, which owned Crypto Collateral. And the third one is the algorithmic stable coin, where they say, we don't really own anything, we own synthetic assets. But, but that, so that is how the link to, to PAR is maintained. Let's put up a very interesting chart from this paper, starting off with, with Euro dollars, showing LIBOR to overnight index swap OIS spreads at the great financial crisis. Explain how the chart on the left illustrates, highlights the issue of PAR, and then maybe we'll look at some charts later of stable coins and their pegs and how that shows a, a similar issue. As you said, PAR is the key issue. We call the paper on PAR, which of course is a, a tiny bit of an economist's pun. On par, this is this this par is the is the way we're getting into stable coins. What is par? Par is a price. It's a price between two different financial assets. It's a special kind of price in which that the 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 value, the numerical value of the price is meant to always be one. And so that's definitely true of stable coins, Tether and USDC and and Terra, USD, as you mentioned. The whole point of them is that they're intended always to trade at a fixed price of one. So if you look in, if you zoom out from crypto and look at other kinds of non-crypto financial assets, there's actually a lot of financial instruments that are designed around this exact principle, where the point is the point is to have an asset which trades at a fixed price of one, either exactly one or very close to one. This is a common idea. So you could take, for example, you know, if you think about money market funds deposits, right? That's a key example. The point of them is that you put your money in and it's not a bank deposit. It's not FDI, FDI insured. It's an investment fund. And the fund managers are taking the money and putting it into some kind of asset. But the thing that you buy, the claim on the money market funds, is meant to trade always at, at close to one. Always at exactly one. Right. And I think there's one, if, not, if it's more than one, it's a handful of instances of you know, regulated US money market funds actually deviating from par. I think in 2008, Maybe it was 2009, but I think 2008, you know, one fund, quote, famously broke, broke the buck of trading at 97 cents. And that is a big deal. So in the, in the TradFi world, you know, 97 cents is a big deal. Whereas stable coins, sometimes, even if, you know, the assets are there and there's a reason that it should be, you know, $1 worth $1, it goes down to, to 87 cents. You know, as is what happened for some crypto stable coins in March 2023 with Silicon Valley Bank, we'll get there. And then needless to say, Terra USD went to literally zero where, you know, in traditional finance, at true zero is hard to reach. You know, sometimes it goes to one penny, but there's not, there's nothing more zero than zero. So there's a lot of these, there's a lot of these things, non-crypto things, which are money-like assets, which are meant to have a, to trade a par at a, at a fixed price of one. And people have tried to compare stable coins to, to lots of different, to lots of different ones. And we mentioned the examples in the, in the paper. What we wanted to do, and I'm, I'm trying to work my way back to, to your question where you sort of dove right in. We, our comparison is to euro dollars, and that's, something, that's a term that needs to be explained, I think. Some of your audience will know it. Others might want one sentence of explanation. Euro dollar is an offshore, meaning outside of the United States, dollar-denominated deposits, usually at a private commercial bank. In general, they're not regulated deposits. Some, some jurisdictions might lightly regulate them. They're dollars, denominated in U.S. dollars, but not under supervision or not under the supervision of the U.S. Federal Reserve, and they don't in general have access, or maybe they have only indirect access to the Fed's liquidity facilities. So they're dollars offshore. You can trace the history back to kind of the 50s, or really, as we say in the paper, they really get going in the 70s as a response to some of the big financial changes 
global financial structural changes that were happening at that. So what is the point? Euro dollars are offshore deposits in dollars and they need to be, for their customers, the, the depositors, they need to be able to work as dollars, which means they need to trade at a fixed price of what? To US dollars, but they're not onshore. And they don't have access to the, normal, to the normal dollar mechanics. So we said, actually, there's a lot in common between, between Euro dollars, offshore US dollar deposits, and stable coins, which are on-chain money-like dollar denominated. There are some other currencies, but it's mostly US dollars. On-chain dollar denominated tokens, which are meant to, to operate, to, to trade normally at a fixed price of one. So one of the big comparisons that we make in the paper, and this is one of the things I'd like, I'd like people to know that we said, is that we compare offshore, which is the euro dollar market, to on-chain, which is the stablecoin market. And what we say is that both of these things, either going from the US to offshore, that's stepping outside of the Fed's purview. And so you're stepping, you're taking a big step away from the heart of the US dollar financial system. Or if you go on chain, then in a different way, you're stepping out of the Fed's purview. You're stepping out of the regulated financial space into this innovative crypto space, which is changing and, and rules are changing around it. So it's not going to be that way forever. But, but what it has been over the time we're talking about is uh, a space which is distinct from the normal U.S. regulatory and financial regime, and 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 so so on chain is a lot like offshore in that space. So from there, we want to follow the analogy between stablecoins and euro dollars. They're not exactly the same. I want to say that very clearly. Not exactly the same, but the comparison is really revealing. So one of the angles that we want to follow in this paper is what is the rate of interest, representative rates of interest. Here we have one month and three month on the left hand side there. What are the, the key rates of interest that are available either onshore or onshore when we're talking about euro dollars? And later we're going to compare that to off-chain versus on-chain uh, with stable coins. So in this graph, which is right around the, the two financial crisis, one of the key places where we could see the crisis play out was in the difference between onshore dollar rates, which is the OIS rate here, and offshore dollar rates, which is the which is the measured by the LIBOR, which we don't really use as much anymore. But at the time, it was, it was a pretty valid uh, measure of euro dollar rates, meaning offshore dollar rates. Before the crisis started, and this, so what we plotted here is the difference between those two rates. And before the crisis started, the difference was essentially zero. And if you squint, you can see that occasionally it's something a little bit different from zero, but basically it's a flat line on zero. In the middle of 2007, these two rates started to move apart. And the reason is, that people were starting to be worried about the US financial system. And so if you had offshore dollars, all of a sudden that started to seem like less of a secure bet. People were trying to move their money onshore. So all of a sudden a gap opened up between, between onshore rates and offshore rates, reflecting the sense that we should try to get closer to the Fed. Meaning if we've got offshore dollars, we should try to get them back onshore because things will be safer as we're close, if we're closer to the Fed. And that sentiment bubbled over was on the boil for the second half of 2007 and most of 2008. And then in September of 2008, it exploded. And that's a gap of about 300 basis points, the difference between onshore and offshore rates. So that's a measure of onshore and offshore coming apart. And that's one way you can see that, that there's a real strain on keeping a fixed price between offshore, a fixed price of one between offshore and onshore dollars. So people... Keep that chart in your mind of showing the spike in 2007 and then subsequently 2008 of LIBOR OIS showing euro dollars. There, there was a, a scramble for 
pristine onshore assets with you know little to no credit risk, whereas LIBOR, an unsecured rate, suddenly you know, when, as you read in the paper, when there's a demand for for money, that is when it is scarce. Like when you when you most need money, that's when you don't have it. Now let's compare this to this chart showing lending rates within crypto as a spread above SOFR, which replaced LIBOR, which is you know, you know, very little credit risk. So this LIBOR system is dead. So euro dollars, maybe there's a question of is you know, are stable coins the new new euro dollars? And showing this green chart, this green line, which up until the middle of 2022, on-chain rates were higher than SOFR or sort of the, the TradFi risk-free rate. And the on-chain rate is not a is not a risk-free rate. The time period was you know, Alex Mashinsky, CEO of Celsius, which by the way, all that lending, I believe was off chain, but it was crypto. He was saying, you'll get 10% on your money. The Fed is giving you zero and we're giving you 10%. That is the time period. Again, exactly. that's not representing the entire crypto world. And that was ended up not being quote, technically on chain. It was like centralized CFI, not DeFi. But I just want to, you know, interest rates were zero and crypto was quote, yielding 10%. That is what this chart shows. There's a lot in this graph. And I want to say in the history of writing this paper, you know, the three of us, when the first version of this graph appeared in front of us, we got very excited because it was all of a sudden it's like, ah, yes, this is the story. We can see it. So, so there's a lot going on here, but I'll, I'll walk you through it. As you said just now, Jack, the green line, that's, the, that's comparable to what the graph we were just looking at here. It's measured on the right-hand scale where it says percent. The green line is the difference between Aave lending rates and the default DeFi protocol Aave. And so, yes, it's so far, it's not going to matter too much which overnight rate you put on the bottom here. The, the difference is this, the, pick, the shape of this graph is not going to change that much if you sub out that funds or some other overnight rate. So that's, that, that's not the story that's here. The story is the, is the difference between Aave rates and overnight dollar rates. And as you just said, Jack, from, remember the, the Fed dropped at the beginning of the pandemic, the Fed dropped rates back down to zero. And they stayed there until until 2022, early 2022. And so the so your your choice was between having off off chain dollars where you got nothing, and on chain various kinds of investments on chain, including Aave, which we took as kind of a vanilla lending rate that that was pretty easy to get. And what we show is that that difference is gigantic, right? So that's that the the difference is in the early part of this, at the very least, 500 basis points or five percentage points. Spiking up on some days over fifteen, over fifteen percentage points. So if you could borrow off-chain dollars and nothing, and get them on chain and lend them in Aave, you could earn fifteen percentage points on on your money, because the because the funding cost was was zero. And so people did that. And then the other lines here, the red and blue lines, show the total stable coins outstanding, and that's measured on the left-hand scale in billions. And it's pretty simple to say that if you could borrow off-chain dollars in zero, move them on-chain, and lend them at a spread of 5 to 15 percentage points, that that's a good bet. And it was a good bet, and people did that. And so what you saw was that stablecoin issuance grew quite dramatically over, especially over 2021 and into 2022, from a couple tens of billions up to almost 200 billion in issuance. So people were moving their money off-chain. Stablecoins were the way that you accessed you need a stablecoin to enter into a DeFi protocol, right? So people were buying stablecoins in order to be able to move money into Aave and other kinds of on-chain lending protocols. Then the Fed starts raising rates. And that's those vertical lines. And 
the, the colors of the lines actually tell you how big the rate hike was. Mm. But all you really need to see is that in the middle of this graph, the Fed starts raising rates. And when the Fed starts raising rates, overnight rates are coming up. And so now the, the spread that you can get with your money on chain falls. And so the green line falls and it eventually becomes negative. So now what that means is that if you do that same trade, you borrow money off chain and you move it on chain and you lend it in Aave, now you're losing money. You're losing two percentage points or so with every dollar that you, that you move to. So it doesn't make sense anymore. And correspondingly, we have seen stablecoin issuance falling over that period of time. So what we think is that this is over this time period, this is a pretty good explanation of what happens. There was, a, there was free money for anyone who wanted, who could borrow at zero and lend on Aave and that the returns to that shrank and now have become negative with the Fed raising rates. Now, now there's not a strong financial incentive to move your money from off-chain into the on-chain world and stablecoin issuance is falling accordingly. I know that if we updated this graph, you would see a little bit of an uptick. And, and so soon enough, we'll have to understand that and, and, and come up with a convincing story. And I'm following it. We're following it. But I really don't think it changes the big picture dynamic of what's been happening. Stablecoin issuance was driven by difference between off-chain and on-chain Stablecoin issuance was driven by the spread to lend profitably in the ecosystem. TradFi was yielding less than crypto. I want to ask you about the risk, because I remember during crypto bull market of, let's say, late 2021, you know, I would encounter crypto people and they would tell me about, oh, this new lending protocol, you got to look it up. And it, you know, it ends up yielding 80,000%. So you know, this chart, we, we need a logarithmic chart. And you know, needless to say, enormous amounts of credit risk there. And I don't think they were earning stable coins. They were earning coin, you know, crypto coins that were rapidly depreciating in value. Because if you print money and you print tokens, you know, people are going to sell them. And that's, that's how finance works. Mm-hmm. So this chart, the, the, the floor is something like negative 5% or negative 4 or negative 3%. Because as the Federal Reserve raised rates, the, what you're subtracting by increased instead of crypto yielding 6% and you're subtracting by zero because rates are at zero, you're subtracting by, you know, now interest rates are at 5.5%. But what about the actual crypto earned rate going down as well? How does that change during a crypto bull market? Why is it that interest, you know, crypto interest rates were at 6% or for, you know, very risky stuff, much, much, much higher during a bull market, but then during a bear market of, of 2022 you know, and 2023, you know, suddenly yields are, are low. It, how, how does that make sense? We're thinking about money, right? And so money is about, this, is about the, the most secure end of the, of the crypto picture. And, and that's what stable coins are meant, are meant to be. They're saying, you know, this is a money-like claim. You put in a dollar and you're going to get a dollar back when you're done and really, really emphasizing the low risk uh, aspect of it. So we chose Aave for that graph because that is kind of the most vanilla sort of conservative lending protocol. There are some other choices including, as you're saying, highly speculative choices, right? And so, and so that's, that's definitely like adding to the pull. We were trying, maybe you could think of that as a lower bounds, right? Because if all you do is, is take money off chain and, and hold a very straightforward asset, which is a lending protocol on, on chain, if all you do is that, then that, that green line in the graph that you, were, that you just set up, that's what you get. Crypto, of course, was also pretty speculative. So, so that's, just, that's just creating a whole range of other possibilities where that spread is even higher above what we said. Obviously, kind of puts you at the minimum of that. You go up from there with more leverage or more inventive protocols or w- whatever it is. And so clearly that was also part of the story. But 
but for anyone to attract interest, they would have to offer more than Ave, right? So, so, so I'm comfortable with what we've got as a, as a, a, a lower bound. Now, since then, enthusiasm for crypto is down. Regulatory actions are up, including obviously some high-profile criminal cases. And so, so you know, this is this is part of the bigger story. You know, kind of maybe it's a reboot for crypto, where where a lot of the excessive behaviors are going to have to are going to have to to be to be toned down. People are going to, you know, more protocols and, and DeFi projects are going to partner with regulated institutions. You're going to see things that are coming out of more familiar off-chain financial institutions like StockGen's new, new stablecoin, uh, PayPal has issued a stablecoin. So all of that is kind of this seems to be sort of a next wave of, of crypto. Some of us might have said that, that, you know, that the end of FTX was spelled the, the end for crypto. And I might have felt that way for a couple of weeks, and it seems like it was too soon. It was too soon to make that call, but but still, it's pretty clear that it's pretty clear that things are going to have to change, and they are in the process of changing now. Hey everyone, today's interview is brought to you by Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol, an environmental solution for Bitcoin. This is something you won't want to miss, especially if you're an asset manager with an ESG focus. You might be eyeing Bitcoin, but are hesitant because of its significant and growing energy use. That's where Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol comes in. They've developed something called a Sustainable Bitcoin Certificate, or SBC for short. SBC turns Bitcoin into the ultimate ESG asset. These SBCs are not just another digital asset. They make your Bitcoin holdings climate positive and even verify the use of clean energy from leading publicly traded miners listed on NASDAQ. They're carefully engineered to support clean energy miners, fuel renewable energy projects, and help you meet those ESG goals that are so critical today. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky idea. It's actionable, it's credible, and it's here now. If you're looking to align your Bitcoin investments with your sustainability goals, look no further. Interested? Speak with your preferred OTC desk, BitGo, Copper, or other leading custody providers, or visit www.sustainablebtc.org. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. How would you say that in terms of the differences between euro dollars and stable coins, are stable coins fundamentally, or so far, have been fundamentally less stable because they don't have forward markets. Can you, can you explain the, the, that theory that you, you go into in your paper? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is one of the key things uh, that we bring out in the paper. So we've got a reason to think that euro dollars and stable coins are similar. We've got this idea of par, which is the fixed price of one, and that's operative definitely euro dollars. And we can also understand that, it's, that that idea is working in stable coins. But then, so, so now let's try to learn something about stable coins by thinking about euro dollars, right? And from what we know, from the euro dollar system, which, which you know, this it's hard to get a precise number, but it's something like $12 trillion in offshore dollar deposits outstanding. And the system actually works pretty well. And in general, you don't really ever have to worry about par breaking down in, in the euro dollar system. So why is that? Well, one of the things that in this $12 trillion system, which is uh, an order of magnitude bigger, obviously, than, than stable coins, and has a lot longer history, this fully developed markets, and in particular, as you said, forward markets. So what does that mean? means that you can you can borrow and lend today and you can you can arrange those borrowing and, and borrowing and lending with maturities over a whole range of timescales, right? From from short overnight, one one week, one month, all the way out the yield curve to up to up to multiple years. And so that's it plays a really important role. And this is something we, we think has been underappreciated by the crypto world. The role that it plays is if somebody is, is, needs dollars, they need, let's say they have euro dollars and they're going to need to move them on shore 
or maybe they have another currency and they're going to need to move it into dollars. When there's a full range of forward markets, they have a lot of flexibility about timing the exact moment of the cash flow that they get. They can use the forward markets to, to, to move dollars out one month or out six months. They can make a comprehensive plan and they can look at the prices of, that, of money, interest rates for six month loans, interest rates for three months loans, borrowing, lending, both options are available. So they have a lot of flexibility about when, and they can look at the price and understand. You think about a, you know, a medium sized or large business operating outside of the US with some dollar, with some dollar expenses, they can use the Euro dollar market to plan exactly when they're gonna have that cash and they can, they can watch the prices and get the best possible deal. And what that means is that if, if you know, somebody, it turns out that they're gonna have it in three months, they're gonna have a big excess of dollars because some payments coming in, they can lend that out right now in, in fully developed forward markets in Euro dollars. They can lend that out right now. So surplus in dollars gets reflected in forward prices today. If you didn't have those, those forward markets, you just have to wait. And then three months from now, all those dollars show up. What happens then is that, is that today's interest rates have to move as a, as a consequence. Mm -hmm. So you know, in a system where you have a fully developed set of forward markets at all time scales and lots of money coming and going in the system all the time, you end up with a very, it ends up being very smooth because people are looking way ahead and every bump in the road that they see coming, they sort it out now in the forward market. And as a consequence, today's the, the par today is never really tested because people have anticipated it by a week or a month or six months and they sorted it out a long time ago and prices moved a little bit and, and that also gave them enough time to average things out. So the fully developed forward markets is something that Euro dollars have that stable coins really don't have. We know from the history of euro dollars that those forward markets are doing a lot of work and that par is pretty secure in the offshore dollar system. You don't really have to worry about par. If you have an offshore, you have a dollar in London, you can turn that into a dollar in New York very easily. And you don't really have to think twice about it. And the reason is that forward markets are absorbing a lot of the fluctuation so that today everything is very smooth. Now, stable coins are kind of like euro dollars, but they don't really have forward markets. You can get with Aave or whatever, you can get a little bit of borrowing and lending, but it's nothing like, it's nothing like the, the extensive forward markets that you have in your dollars. In your dollars every day, you can get a quote for any maturity out to, to multiple years, and you can be sure of actually transacting at those rates and, and paying minimal transaction costs, and that, and that system is ongoing all the time. In Aave, you, know, you can make some, you can, you can borrow and lend a little bit, but you simply can't smooth out all of the cash flow needs that you might have. So as a result, you see in the stablecoin market, in the various stablecoins, pressures that have to get resolved in spot markets. There's nowhere else for them to go. And so par, par fluctuates by a lot more than you've ever seen in the euro dollar system. So, so the big cases are, are some of the, the examples where, where Terra failed during the failure of SB, SBB, which was an off-chain bank, but with a lot of crypto connections. And you see movements away from par that are pretty big when you're thinking about, if you're thinking about these things as a form of money, stable coins as a form of money, then those fluctuations from par are really gigantic. That's, that's not what a money-like asset should do. And a big part of the reason, as we say in the paper, is there's nothing like the comprehensive forward markets that are available in Eurodollars. So that is one difference between Eurodollars and stable coins. I want to highlight at least two more. The one is you know, obvious is that euro dollars have the Federal Reserve. And although there's no offic official connection, in 
rare instances of deviation when you know, LIBOR rates, Eurodollar rates are uh, spike over the onshore OIS rates, the Federal Reserve steps in as the lender of last resort, as it did during 2008, and as it did during March you know, in April of, of 2020. There is no central bank in, in crypto. How much of the increased instability in stable coins is is the lack of forward markets versus the lack of a central bank? Because I'd say, you know, in most instances, okay, the LIBOR no longer exists. Eurodollar still exists, but Eurodollar futures do not. So, you know, anyone talking about a Eurodollar's curve, they're referencing a treasury curve or a SOFR curve or a Fed funds curve, which are not Eurodollar curves. But in most instances, the Eurodollar curve is very similar, which no longer exists, is very similar to the Fed funds curve or the treasury curve, which on a short-term basis over you know, the next two years, it's basically thinking, okay, what are dollar interest rates going to be? So it's all about the Federal Reserve. What does a short-term money market or a, you know, the, a short-term money market futures world look like in the absence of a Federal Reserve? I guess, you know, is crypto kind of like a pre-19 world? And if so, what determines those rates? Just supply and demand? I mean, you know, as someone who is has you know operating within a central bank world, I, I really don't know. Yeah. So let me just let me clarify one thing, which is that Euro dollars definitely still exist. And what's changed about LIBOR is that it's not being published in the same way and it's not used as a reference anymore. It used to be a standard measure of conditions in the offshore dollar market. And due to the scandals associated with that, where it was manipulated by by Eurodollar traders, it fell out of favor. And now SOFR is kind of replacing it, which is a market-based rate and harder to manipulate. But Eurodollars still exist, and a, a Eurodollar curve would still exist to someone who's trans- transacting in that market. And they call their they call their bank and they say, "What deposit rate can you offer me for one month, three months, six months, a year?" And so we don't talk about it in the same way, but it still exists for someone who's who's interacting, who holds Eurodollars or is or is buying and selling them. Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year, in the heart of London. We're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally-focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of real-world assets. So think stablecoins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there, and so are the Forward Guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. But that, would that be a, an overnight index swap rate between two counterparts? But it's, it's not commoditized in the way that it used to be. It's not reported. Like, I, I don't have access to that data, you know? I'd have to call a bank and convince them to give me the data, which they wouldn't, you know? Well, if you had a million dollars that you wanted to place, or $10 million that you wanted to place, they would probably give you the, give you the quotes that you wanted. But, but no, we're, we're not just, like, looking at the data the way that we, the way that we used to. Yes. And, yeah, uh, uh, LIBOR, London, Interbank, offering rates... So for secured overnight financing rate. And that word secured means 
basically no credit risk. It's repo. So the other part of your question was about was about how we might get maybe we could say how how we might get a full set of forward functioning liquid forward markets in crypto. What it means that they're not connected to to the Fed. I think that this is a a, a question of sort of institutional evolution, right? Because crypto has been driven by by speculative activity, by the promise of very high yields, by 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 you know vision and so on remaking the financial system, providing a full set of liquid forward markets in crypto, that certainly could be done. That's, that's a, it's pretty easy conceptually to imagine how you might do that. But this is a real infrastructural process. It's not flashy. It's not going to be high returns. It's really the, the business there is carefully managing big flows of money and not losing any money uh, day after day after day after day for years and years and years. It's a real plumbing type of job. You know, You haven't really seen a lot of Big players in the crypto space who really want to take on, you know, building a full set of, of plumbing, non-glamorous, highly functional markets, which are all about making sure that liquidity is, is adequate and responsive, which is how you make a, a financial system work day to day, which is how you make sure that your stable coins continue to trade at par. That's not a job that anybody seems to want to build. Now, if they did, what would that mean? Well, if you, want to, if you want to build that system and actually make promises that are credible, like you're definitely going to be able to lend for you know, overnight in size in this market every day that you want to, for any institution to be able to say that, they kind of need to know that they're going to be able to access the Fed if they need it. And right now, the, the likelihood that the Fed is going to offer that kind of backstop to a bank or a, another kind of financial institution operating that kind of thing in crypto is zero. Fed would not would not accept that. We tested that with S where where they stepped in a little bit, but they're not going to let somebody build a build a comprehensive infrastructure for crypto under the current regulatory apparatus. That is up for change, to be sure. People are talking about that. Regulators are involved. Institutions are building new crypto experiments. So if we're looking five years ahead, I think things could certainly change. But under the current conditions, it's not possible to make big stable liquidity claims of big and stable liquidity that are credible because anyone who makes those promises is not going to have access to the Fed when it Yeah, I guess the reality is they make those claims and 99% of the time the claims are good. But when there's a crypto lending crisis, the money just isn't there. Federal Reserve intervened to set up Silicon Valley Bank, although the, you know, their big program they set up it's two days after they failed. And Silicon Valley Bank held as deposits some of the deposits for Circle, the, the, the stable coin. And likewise, Silvergate Bank, this you know, big crypto bank that banked many, many ins crypto institutions, I believe, FTX and or Alameda Research, they were a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank and borrowed immensely from them. And I also, I, they also were a re you know, regulated by the Federal Reserve, although I'm unaware of any borrowing there. So, but you're saying a, a institution that, you know, crypto crypto bank corporation, yeah, the Federal Reserve is not going to, or, or even some financial institution that's not a bank, the Federal Reserve is not going to intervene. I, I, I get that. So what's it, what's it going to take to have these, these forward markets in, in crypto? Do, I mean, do, do they have them now? Because I know there are, there are you know, increasingly sophisticated forward markets in Bitcoin futures markets to go be speculatively long on leverage risk assets. So not stable coins, but projects that are denominated in stable coins or denominated in dollars. So, so you can get my Bitcoin futures, Ether futures on the CME and you can buy, buy futures. But as you point out in the paper, so much of the activity is 
either either on chain or on unregulated or semi-regulated exchanges where it's off-chain, but it's it's not the CME. And you know, there are so-called perpetual futures, which I actually think are they're kind of the opposite of what they sound, where they 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 roll every single day uh, instead of rolling every you know March or every every December, every every month. They are constantly rolling. So it's an ability, is it it's in again, it's it's basically a way to get immense amount of unregulated leverage. And, you know, the difference between wheat now and wheat in April may be different because the fundamentals for, for wheat are different. But Bitcoin now versus Bitcoin in April, it's it's still Bitcoin. So, you know, offering 100 times leverage on Bitcoin futures, is that just a way to get around not being able to lend 100 times leverage on Bitcoin spot? Because to me, I don't functionally see a huge difference. Yeah, I think it's basically just a speculative. It's just a speculative play. You know, remember that that if we go back in history, right, the the Bitcoin was created in the wake of of the 2008 crisis, and you read the paper, and what you see is like a real frustration with with the outcome of the crisis, and and you know people not paying a price for for taking advantage of their structural position in the financial system. And so here comes crypto as as a, a different kind of money with based on different sorts of different sorts of principles. And I think that that accurately reflects the you know initial motivation, but then two things happened, right? One is that it really became a speculative vehicle and the, the you know, story of the, the big climb in Bitcoin's price, especially from like 2019 to 2021, that's about speculative activity and people gambling, really, you know, and, and so obviously some people did very well from that. Yeah, I think, I think Bitcoin futures and even Bitcoin ETFs, certainly perpetual futures, this is mostly just about a way to economize, to speculate on the price of Bitcoin in a more economical way. By, by using leverage. The other thing that happened as part of this evolution was the stablecoins got invented, right? Because people said, okay, crypto, we like this idea, but we're gonna need something that works with money in this system. And, and one, the important feature of money is that it has a very predictable value and you can use it to, to make payments. So Bitcoin didn't really have that. And the whole point is that it was speculative. And at the time the price was rising. So it was a, a pretty good speculative bet. But it didn't really work very well as money per se because its value changed too easily. So it's a little bit of a of a you know c- concession on on Bitcoin's original crypto's original objectives. But but practically speaking, people felt that you needed to have a money like crypto claim that would let people interface between the off chain world and the on chain world, so that you could have money for the crypto space, something that was recognizable as money, and that and par was the the essential piece. Of it. Something that you can denominate crypto assets in. So Bitcoin goes from $10,000 to $30,000. But if you want to be on chain and do all these semi-unregulated things, it really should be denominated in some sort of stablecoin because it would be a huge pain if every single transaction, you know, you had to have JP Morgan approve it. And, you know, as we know from Jamie Dimon's testimony, not a huge fan of crypto. Yeah, exactly. You need, you need money for the crypto space. And, and for because of the crypto tech, what that means is on-chain money. You need money that is represented as tokens that move on the same chains as other kinds of other kinds of crypto assets, but it needs to work as money. And, and that means its value needs to be predictable. And in the world we're living in, that still means that still means basically needs to be a fixed price in, in dollars. And Bitcoin's not really suitable for that. It's volatile, like to have the value of your money be so unpredictable, often up, but then also now frequently down, you know. That's not a great. That's not a great choice for a money-like asset. So that so the reason why stablecoins were created is very 
easy to understand in that, in that respect. You need something with stable value. Now we're at the point where that thing exists, but, but how do you actually make that promise of stability real? And crypto has mostly been used for, for speculative activity. People have dreams of building it into a, a different kind of financial system with more, you know, uh, like actual practical uses in the business world and international transactions and so on. If you want to build a system where people are going to be willing to put millions and billions and eventually trillions of dollars into that system to take advantage of those benefits, some of which are definitely real, they're going to need to be more sure of the stability of their money-like assets. Stable coins are going to have to work better than they have when they worked through SVB or then or the or the Terra collapse. Oh yeah, Terra, Terra collapse was an absolute disaster. But let's show a chart of various stable coins before, during, and after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And we have it shows Tether, USD, USD coin or USDC, Circle, Dai, and then Binance USD. Tether ever so slightly increases in price, so ever so slightly above one dollar as USDC and die decline in value. In terms of the plumbing, what happened here? And then also, can you explain why Tether rose? I suppose it's because people sold their USDC to go into Tether. Does that happen in the banking world where a bank deposit or your dollar is ever worth slightly more than $1? I know, for example, in the TradFi world, okay, money was flowing out of Silicon Valley Bank, money was flowing out of First Republic Bank, it was flowing into the large money you know, center banks in on the Northeast, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, but it's not as if Bank of America's deposits became, you know, worth a dollar and one penny, was it? No. So that's another example of par. And in the in the off chain system, you know, a, a in some sense, a dollar at Bank of America and a dollar at Citibank are two different assets, right? The the credit risk is different. In one case, you're exposed to Bank of America, and the other case, you're exposed to Citibank. Two different assets, but they trade at par. And this is another good use of the idea of par. The trade at par, which means it's pretty easy to turn one, one asset into the other. It's easy to turn a deposit claim at Bank of America into a deposit claim at Citibank. And the price is one, and you would expect the price to be a one. And it's so constant that we forget that there's a price. And that's one of the features of par in a system that works. And there's a price there because it's two different assets, but it works so well that you forget that there's a price. You forget that they're two different assets. And that's the strength of the system, in fact, because... A bank deposit is a bank deposit, and it only matters a little bit what bank you're, you're, you have that deposit at. So you don't see, you know, you, you don't see if you have a, a deposit at a strong bank and people are worried about some other bank, you don't see that your deposits become, become more valuable as a result. But that is what we saw in, so they're so stable, you know, they're stable on the upside as well. But here, but see, uh, right, like, you know, JP Morgan was continuing to offer essentially zero you know, interest rates to, to people who are fleeing Silicon Valley Bank, a business, they said, okay, this will be our non-interest bearing deposits for the same reason that, you know, a regional bank going through issues, let's say, who has to rely increasingly on wholesale deposits or the Federal Home Loan Bank, they have to pay basically the Fed funds rate 5.5% or maybe even higher, whereas, you know, many banks can pay zero or, or their weighted average cost is like just 2%. So is that example of the forward markets where, the deposit isn't worth, instead of the deposit being worth $1.01 and one penny, it's still worth a dollar, but it just has a lower forward price. Yeah. Well, so, so right. So the, the, the value of the deposit is, is fixed at one. That's par. Not only today, but, but I don't expect that to change 
any time in the time horizon in which I can look forward. The price is one. But that doesn't mean that, that there's not more demand some days and less demand other days. So that's what you see in the interest rates, right? Is that, is that you know, interest rates, there's the yield curve really, right? So you have interest rates here and then they fall a little bit a couple of years out. And that's an expression of the balance of supply and demands for dollars at each point out in the curve and, and the borrowing and lending rates absorb pressure. And, and again, in bank deposits, in onshore deposits, you have a pretty good forward set of very liquid set of forward markets where you can exchange money on any day in the future. You, today, you can transact and exchange money at any point in the future that you want and get a, a liquid price. And those rates move. The yield curve moves up and down all the time as people borrow and lend or buy and sell bonds, whatever. And it moves in such a way that the spot par never breaks. If we didn't have all those forward markets, then, then changing demand for money would have to be expressed today. And it will be a lot harder for par for, for, for your deposits at Citibank to be equal to your deposits at Bank of America because there's no forward market in which to, in which to agree to, to sort out those differences. So the graph here, right, shows back to the stablecoins world. This is, this is not what you have in stablecoins. I want to just call attention to the time scale here, right? This is, we're looking at one day here. This is March 10th of this year, which is a Friday, March 11th, which is a Saturday. And we knew that by Friday, we knew this stuff was going on at, at Silicon Valley Bank and people were trying to figure it out. And you saw, you know, par, and all those coins are pretty close to one at the beginning, farther away from one than you would expect from a, from a bank deposit, but still, okay, pretty close to one. And then, and then a little bit before midnight on the 11th, people start to figure out what's going on and they start trying to get into Tether because Tether is perceived to be more distant from, from Silicon Valley Bank's struggles. And while they're moving away from Tether, they're, sorry, we're only moving toward Tether, they're moving away from DAI and Circle, which are the yellow and blue lines, as you said. Did DAI also- It's affected by this. Why, why was DAI caught in the mix? Right. So this is an important story. The way uh, I'll show you, the way you follow it is if you look at that vertical line, which is A, this is the day that Circle, so that's USDC, Circle discloses that $3.3 billion of its reserve is held in the form of deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. That disclosure came at that moment with the vertical line marked A. Circle is the yellow USD coin, USDC is the yellow line there. So immediately after that announcement, USDC starts to drop away from par down to 92 cents. What people figured out a little while after, minutes after, but, but you can see the blue line dips afterwards, was that, oh, USDC has got reserves at SBB and DAI has reserves at USDC. So DAI has crypt, a lot of crypt, crypto collateral, collateral or did at this time. And some of that was at USDC. So, so the blue line owns a lot right? of the yellow line. So if the yellow line goes down, the blue line goes down. First the yellow line goes down and then the blue line goes down. Then the yellow line goes up and then the blue line goes up. And then the yellow line goes down again and then the blue line goes down again. It's followed the leader and, and DAI is a couple, is less than an hour behind, behind USDC. So what does it say? There's a hierarchy here. It's not a permanent, unchanging hierarchy, but things are arranged in order. At this moment, Tether was on the top and, and Binance was kind of off, off to its own side. There was some volatility, but it never really broke par, you wouldn't say. A couple of little deviations. And USD coin was below and, and DAI was, was, in this case, at the bottom. The thing that fixed all of this, and this is important to say, the thing that fixed all of this was that SBB got a liquidity backstop. Right, so the underlying problem was that Silicon Valley Bank wasn't going to be able to pay. It had cash due on that Friday and wasn't going to be able to do it, and they got bailed out. Then they, you know, the, the company got absorbed, right? But 
but in the moment, in the moment they got made good. And, and that was through federal reserve support and that fixed the problem. And, and if you follow the, the value of these stable coins along, once Silicon Valley Bank got a liquidity back up, back up, then the stable coin prices returns apart. So that means that underlying this was a liquidity problem. The issue was not so much about, about you know, the, the level of assets and liabilities that anybody had, but about the ability to pay at that moment. All that happens was, was that the Fed said, you know, we're going to make good on Silicon Valley Bank shortfall. And when they said that, then, then par came back into effect, more or less, for the stable coins. Right. And again, it's not the fact that Tether was rallying as USDC fell. It, it was a worries about look and also maybe people selling, thinking that other people would sell. So there was a psychological dynamic. It was not an expression of the uh, fundamental solvency of Tether. I mean, I think if you ask most crypto people, or at least some crypto people, you know, which is more solvent, uh, USDC Circle, which has audited financials of what they own specifically in Tether, which has unaudited financials. I think a lot of people are more confident in USDC than they are in Tether. But with Tether, is there sort of an, and again, you remain agnostic about this on the paper, or you, you don't really, really address it too much. A Tether is saying, look, I don't know if Tether owns what they own, but everyone else thinks it's worth a dollar. And, you know, that's going to stay true for the next week. And I want to do some you know, complicated financial crypto operation of the next week. So I'm going to use Tether. I think in, at least in this moment, that we're looking at in this graph, right? I think it's, I think it's, you know, we've realized there's something going on with USDC. We need an alternative. Tether seems to be that alternative in that moment because I might have doubts about Tether, but at this moment in time, Tether seems like a better bet than USDC. If you want to keep your money in the crypto world, then, but you want to move out of USDC, then Tether is the logical choice. Uh, and other times when, when Tether has been more the object of, of speculation about whether it's going to be able to pay, then, then things have moved the other way. So it's an expression, I think, of, of relative uh, confidence or, or lack of confidence rather than, rather than really a big picture statement about, about the health of Tether and the health of, of any other stablecoin. And I think you know, if you're going long, someone who's going long Bitcoin relative to USDT, like a, a future contract, Bitcoin by USDT Tether is the denominator. If Tether is not worth a dollar and it's worth zero, that might be an extremely good bet because you want your denominator to, to go to go. Is there an example in the TradFi world where you can be long an asset? Like, let's say you can be long an asset relative to a euro dollar, you know, borrowing a euro dollar. And then if euro dollars are, you know, there's a credit problem, you could actually benefit from that. Or is it does it fundamentally have a credit issue where you could never benefit from that? And even in, even in the crypto world, your long you know, BTC, USDT future with some exchange, and there's a credit contract there. And if Tether goes down, the exchange goes down and your contract goes down. So actually, you know, because there are some people who say, oh, well, actually, Bitcoin will rally and, and you'll go up a tremendous amount if, if Tether is revealed as a fraud. Right. Yeah, I follow the logic. I guess I'm, I'm, maybe some of your audience will have good examples. The examples that I'm coming up with are, are the opposite, in fact, right? Because... So the 2008 crisis is an example. You, you take your dollars, you place them with a European bank. European bank buys, uses your dollars to buy U.S. mortgages, mortgage-backed securities, which seemed like a great idea in 2006. And then, and then by 2007, and especially 2008, then all those dollar assets are collapsing. And what happened in that moment was that people wanted to get out of all speculative bets as, as quickly as possible. And... 
you know, in theory, if you're if if par breaks down in the euro dollar system, then in theory, somehow maybe you could profit from that by by picking up dollars on the cheap. But I think that at that moment, and maybe this goes to the bigger point, right? At that moment, the fear of systemic collapse way way overpowered any possibility of 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 profit. And there are exceptions we know, you know, the Big Short or whatever. There are people who who get who games their way through that, but by and large. The fear of of the whole euro system collapsing, of the European banking system not being able to meet any of their dollar obligations, that all those fears really swamped the the possibility of of speculating on the difference. And so, what you saw, as you mentioned earlier, right, is is that the Fed stepped in, used the swap lines. It basically made unlimited dollars available to the ECB and other central banks. And they said one thing that's definitely not going to happen here is that you're going to run out of dollars. And the Fed is in a position to ensure that, and and through the other central banks who did. So, so I don't know. Maybe we could find we could if we if we thought about it for a bit, we could come up with some other corner cases. But the one that's first in my mind is says that you know by the time you get to that point, then systemic fear is too great for there to be much profit opportunity. Right. Yeah. It is funny. Two years ago, there were people within the crypto world as well as crypto skeptics uh, outside the crypto world. Both both parties, so, some of them were very skeptical of Tether and said, you know, Tether could collapse. It's quite funny that, you know, two, three years later, many things within crypto have collapsed, but Tether you know, is, is still going very, very strong. Do you think that the uh, dirt of Tether so far can be explained by this, the immense demand for a fiat currency within crypto for something for ap- assets to be denominated in? And if so... How does that play out going forward, given that there may be a lot of Tether competitors to come, not only USDC, DAI, Binance, USD, you know, Binance is its, it's, its own thing. And then, you know, recently, TradFi institutions, PayPal and SockGen creating their own stable coins, which I think could be huge. Tether's got, got, has taken in billions of dollars and they, they've issued these tokens on a couple of blocks and, and they invest the money in, in a variety of things. And once a quarter, they put up a, they put up a one-page description of what they've of what they've got. At that scale, they're comparable to a big money market fund or a, or a small bank, and they Tether is putting out a lot less disclosure than those other institutions. They've been able to to do it now for a few years, and and not and they they've broken par more than once by more than by more than in the euro dollar system, but but they haven't collapsed and they haven't and they haven't failed. Um, so, but I think that they're not going to be allowed to continue to do what they've been doing indefinitely. So, if you if you read the 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 news carefully, you know about a week ago, a Treasury Undersecretary made a little bit of a remark that kind of suggests that they've got tether in their sights. And it's too soon to say exactly what that might be, but it's just kind of hard to imagine the Fed and the Treasury allowing a big issuer of money with almost no regulation to continue to, to exist indefinitely. And if regulators decided to come down on Tether, as we've seen already with, with in different ways with finance and with FTX, if they decided to come down, I don't think there's any reason to think that the regulators would not succeed in, in putting a huge amount of pressure of various kinds, regulatory, legal, criminal, on, on Tether if they wanted to. So what you see, as you, as you mentioned, you know, Sokjen just this week is putting out a, a stable coin based on the euro. PayPal has got its own kind of dollar coin. 
So these things are, are we're calling them stable coins and, and that's fine. They trade on public blockchains and they have a fixed value relative to fiat currency, but they're coming from a very different kind of institution from Tether. PayPal is, a, is operating as a, you know, a, a large payments provider with an ongoing business that they're not going to put in jeopardy for their stable coins, right? So PayPal is going to follow the rules. And if new rules come, come out for stable coins, they're also going to follow those new rules. They're not really trying to challenge the system trying to create a profit opportunity using some pieces of crypto tech and, and building out from the business that they've already got. Same thing with StockGen. They're not going to put their banking business at risk to try out a stablecoin. They're going to try to make the stablecoin work in a regulated way. And again, if regulators impose new regulations on those kind of assets, StockGen is going to comply with them. So I think we're seeing a new wave of evolution. And I would call these sort of experiments or prototypes. And I think what they're waiting for is a, is some kind of regulatory certainty or, or kind of the next step in, in the evolution of, of where these blockchain or distributed ledger technologies might fit into the financial system. And some companies are, are trying out one thing or another to be positioned in order to take advantage of that or to be in the right place if it becomes more mainstream and the volumes become bigger. And there are some benefits. We can understand that you know, they get something out of it and they all, they're able to offer products and, and things that the customers want. But I think they're really just trying to sort of be in the right, be in the right place. I don't, I think Tether's days are numbered and they're going to face a choice between, between folding, you know, going to jail, folding, or much more likely either learning to comply with it with an, a set of regulations that will probably be coming or, or joining up with a, an existing financial institution that's already participating in the, in the regulatory world and, and making Tether into a part of, of a bigger institution. I am not referring to any specific rumors or news. It's just, that's just what it seems like their choices are going to be. I don't think that they can be, I don't think they can continue indefinitely operating sort of pretty, pretty, you know, not a lot of regard for, for reporting or regulation or transparency. I don't think they're going to be able to operate like that indefinitely. Yeah. And so Tether's market cap, I just looked up is $90 billion. Looking at the banking world in terms of net interest margin, how much the you know, banks earn on their loans and securities minus how much they have to pay for their liabilities, namely deposits. And okay, we get a net interest margin of 2% or of three, you know, a net interest margin of, of 2% or lower, banks are starting to get into some issues. I look at Tether, they don't pay any deposits at all. Yes, you can earn it on your Tether by, by staking, but it's, it's not Tether who is paying. So if they have it in treasuries earning 5.5% or let's just say 5%, at least short-term treasuries, then, and they pay zero, they have a net interest margin of five. So 5% times 90, let's just round it up, you know, making $5 billion a year. That's a market cap of, if you slap a, a 15 or a 20 multiple on that, it's a hundred billion dollar bank for equity. So that's bigger than, you know, it, it would be one of the largest banks in the world. And it is basically completely unregulated. And everybody knows that, including Tether, including the regulators, including the Fed, you know, Maybe, maybe the regulators hoped that after FTX, that, that maybe crypto will go away on its own. And that seems like that's not what's going to happen. So therefore, I would expect to see more action. And, and you know, it may come slowly. It may come bit by bit. But, but that's what I would expect to see. What our paper says is, okay, stablecoins, right? Like, okay, so you, we built this thing. And, and they're new tech with a lot of old financial ideas and a couple of new things sprinkled in. If you want to grow the system, then there are some pretty concrete things which are missing, right? And, and if you need to have money in the system, which, which 
crypto has already basically came to that conclusion on its own. The creators of stablecoin said, we need a money-like asset here. Now, if you want to make that work, the example of the euro dollar market really shows that there are some big things missing uh, from this. And once we see it that way, we can understand, you know, what happened with Tether around Tether and USDC around SVB. We can understand how Terra broke down. We can see why PAR breaks down in certain ways. And the analogy to euro dollars is really super informative about what kind of system you would need. The stablecoin system that we have really doesn't measure up when you compare it to, to the euro dollar system. And so people who are optimistic or enthusiastic about building a, a stablecoin system, I think could learn from our argument about what's going to be needed to make that system actually work the way that they want. And I think the conclusion you reach is, is that they have a long way to go in order to make that possible. And so they need liquid and stable forward markets. What else do they need? Do they need a central bank? I think definitely liquid forward markets, definitely st stability there. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, when the U.S. didn't have a, a central bank, we had a financial system and no central bank. And then panic of 1907, J.P. Morgan, and then we created a central bank. So it's hard to see how we could build another new financial system with no access to a central bank. The, the you know, I'll plug Minsky, right? I, I wrote a book on, on Minsky, which you can look up. A very Minskyan idea is, is that, you know, this financial systems are inherently unstable. I don't, crypto hasn't, hasn't eliminated instability. Quite the contrary, if we look at recent history. So if a system gets bigger with no access to the central bank, it's going to get more unstable and it's going to break down. Either at that moment, it will attach itself to a central bank, which will mean paying a big price in terms of regulation and, and, probably, and probably wiping out equity, or it will fail and everyone who's put their money in it will go down with it. But, I, but there's no reason to think that crypto has eliminated risk, eliminated liquidity, eliminated instability. All those things are still there. So stablecoin, if this stablecoin system gets built without a central bank, then one day it's going to wake up and realize that it needs it. And so in your conclusion, you interpret the decade-long zero interest rate policy, ZERP, that followed the great financial crisis. Can you talk about how that environment created a certain sort of fostered, how, how did that environment foster crypto? And now that we are definitely out of that zero rate environment is it is it different because you know I, people make a lot of statements of zero interest rates are great for bitcoin and rising rates will uh, suffer that and i see that in 2020 but also you know the huge crypto bull run of of 2016-2017 occurred as the federal reserve was was you know raising interest rates so it's it's not super cookie cutter and but you know this is one of the few into, i mean rare it's very rare that you'll see academic economic papers talk about the link between crypto and zero interest rates. So yeah, I'm fascinated in your thoughts. Zero, we talked about this uh, a few minutes ago when we were thinking about, about the, the spread of, of, of Aave rates over, over SOFA, right? So, so that's a version of the zero interest rates problem. What is the problem? When money is available basically for free, if you're a big bank, it actually basically is free. You know, you're not paying any interest on what comes in. Then, then any kind of speculative activity that has an expected positive return makes sense to do. You take money in for free and you put it anywhere and you make and you make a good speculative return. Rates were basically zero from the 2008 crisis until until pretty recently with a little bit of an exception in the in the year before the pandemic when rates made it up to about 2 2 and change. That's long enough for people to really get used to zero rates. So it's not just that rates are zero today, but it's that we've come come to expect ongoing zero interest rates. And that's long enough for whole business structures, especially financial structures, to get built in such a way 
but they really depend on a constant supply, constant availability of, of free financing. And that has the effect of encouraging a lot of speculative investment because you, you're, you're, the source of funds costs you nothing. So if you're free to take uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of gambles and all you have to do is come out positive in order for that, in order for that to work for you, to, to make a lot of money. Now we've got rates that are not zero, decidedly not zero anymore. And so what's different now is that your borrowing has to yield 5% or more, depending on your cost of funds, but the, the baseline cost of funds is 5.5%. So everybody's paying more than that, pretty much. So now you want to go out and speculate. You want to borrow money and speculate. If, you're not, if that speculative activity, financial investment, capital investment, new business, anything, if that doesn't yield you 5%, then you're losing money. Uh, and that was the story with with Ave and and the and the sort of DeFi world, and this is actually the story with everything, right? That 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 everybody's got biz- businesses that over 15 years, to some extent, sort of built in the assumption of zero interest rates, of free money. Now money is not free, and month by month, what we're seeing is that is that some of those some of those businesses fail. Now they don't fail all at once, because just because you raise interest rates, you know maybe you got borrowing locked in already at lower rates. Maybe you don't need to borrow today, and so today's interest rates don't don't affect you. But over time, everybody's maturing borrowing, you know, uh, finishes up, and they have to roll it over. When they roll it over, now the rates are now the rates are higher. The Fed has been raising rates. Uh, you know, maybe that's maybe that's done. Maybe it's not quite done. We'll find out soon. But but it's it's kind of steadily increasing the pressure on everybody's borrowing. Sooner or later, the lowest hanging fruit in that is going to get absorbed by this by the the increasing pressure on rates and and somebody's going to fail so uh, surely that's already happening but not really in a systemic way svb was was a little wave and we were worried for a little bit we were worried about banks and their treasury portfolios and it hasn't been more than that since then but sooner or later that this this you know tower of speculation that's built on on 15 years of zero rates has got to be rebuilt and either you know maybe it will be it will get rebuilt in a smooth and, and stable way, piece by piece. Nothing collapses. We just we just you know swallow the higher interest rates, and that all gets absorbed. Maybe if you study the the history of finance, then you come to expect that there will be that there will be some fireworks at some point when when the tower collapses in a uncontrolled way. Dan, you're talking about the tower collapsing, and then the, the final words of your paper are as follows. Attempts to artificially shoehorn stable coins within the hierarchy of money should contend with this fact. The promise will be tested, and when it is, high-level money will be called upon to act as a backstop. So are, are you, Perry and you know, Inaki, are you saying that you expect there will be you know, long-term, like there will be more instability in stable coins and that the off-chain dollars will are higher value than on-chain dollars and then that will, you know, reveal itself in due time? Something like that. The details, you know, the details of how this works, we're going to have to wait and see. But the the broad outlines of the story come from history and Perry and Nyaki and I have studied in our own different and overlapping ways, have studied financial institutions, financial history, and, and how this whole thing is put together pretty deeply. And what it says is that if you're out there in the world and you make a promise like, like Tether's promise or other stablecoin issuers promise to pay, to, to issue liabilities and you promise they're going to be worth a fixed price all the time, the lesson is sooner or later, somebody's going to put those promises to the test. And 
and maybe you pass the test the first time, maybe you pass the test the second time. And the more you pass it, the more pressure is going to come on you to pass it again in the future. You, you've promised par. That's a difficult promise to keep. People are going to try it. And, and if you succeed, they're just going to ramp, ramp up the bets and it's going and, and to go on until one day it can't go on anymore. And again, the lesson of financial history is that it always comes to an end. We built up a system in the, in the off-chain world. We built up a system where the central banks in, in all of the world's major financial centers and the, and the U.S. Fed really at the center of the whole thing exist to try to constrain the excesses and then, and then to find ways to put the pieces back together when it, when it breaks. Tether doesn't have access to that. Other stablecoin issuers don't have access to that. And so when the day comes when, they're, when their par promises really deeply get tested, there's not a way to put the system back together if they, if they fail. And so, and I think that's a really strong message of history. And I, you know, part of our, part of our story here is to engage with one piece of that history following the, the euro dollar market through uh, a few decades. And there's a lot of other history, which is also relevant. And it kind of all tells the same story, which is that, you know, you can, you can make something work for a while and the more it works, then the more people are going to try and, and push it. And one day it's not going to work anymore. There's one day it doesn't work anymore and there's a crisis, but from the ashes emerges a stronger and better Phoenix. And then there's one day it doesn't work anymore and the whole party is over. Which camp are you in? Huh. Well, which party do you mean? Uh, I think, I think the, the question we have to ask, we're thinking about stable coins here, right? So, so one can imagine a crisis where, where Tether fails and on the same day, one, maybe one of, the big, one of the big crypto exchanges goes under, Bitcoin plummets 60% in a day. When that happens, you know, maybe some of the big banks get swept into it somehow. I could, it's easy to see that, you know, well, there's two, there's two ways forward, right? One is that we rebuild the system and we pick up the pieces and then crypto ceases to exist after that. Or we rebuild the system and, and some version of crypto continues to exist. But if, the, if things get really bad and you depend on central banks to put the pieces back together, when they do that, they're going to impose big and pretty tough new rules. So either way, when we come out of it, we're going to have a system which is different than what we went into. Did you think this already happened with uh, Terra collapsing in the middle of 2022? And crypto is very much still here. I guess the one thing that is you know, bigger or sufficiently big would be would be Tether. I mean, in the banking world, it's, it is not as if there's one giant bank that has so much of the market and then it's other ones. I mean, there's huge, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America. But it's not as if J.P. Morgan, you know, like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank are all one bank, and then there's a bunch of regional banks. That would be the probably the equivalent of crypto, right? Right. It's, you're, you're saying it's more concentrated in way more concentrated in crypto for stablecoins. Yeah. Yeah. They, these tests have have certainly affected crypto, but I don't think the big one has come. I don't think the big one has come. FTX was a big deal, but if you look at what happened after that, you know, Sam Bankman Fried's trial and so on, the thing that they built that on was fraud. Really, so so that was a you know a big moment in the story of crypto, but then the thing that happened after that never really challenged crypto's big idea. And Sam Bankman-Fried was on trial for fraud and was found guilty of fraud, but not. But it wasn't about the big idea of crypto. It wasn't about blockchains. It wasn't about automated liquidity providers. It wasn't about any of that. It was about fraud. So if you look at if you look at Terra, you know it failed and and. There were a lot of consequences from that, but people didn't look at that and say, and therefore we need to rethink our big ideas about crypto. They said, oh, this, you know, this wasn't very well managed. This wasn't very well designed. You know, we probably shouldn't have an algorithmic protocol like that. 
but nobody, to my mind, nobody really saw all the way down to the big idea and then reached a big conclusion that really changed the, the whole story of crypto. There were incidents along the way, but I think we're still, we're the, the big test of, of crypto, big financial test of crypto is still to come. Uh, I don't think that that, I don't think that, that what we've seen so far is qualifies and, and it could come soon or maybe, maybe it'll come uh, a long time in the future, but every new idea in finance gets tested and, and the institutions that build it get tested. And I don't think we've, I don't think we've quite seen it yet. And what, what makes you think that, you know, if Tether collapses, the money just goes to circle and then there's a new bull market and people are excited about one, one year later, it's like nothing happened. Well, people's memories can be short. People's memories can be short, but, 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 you know, the, the more people that are affected by it, even if, even if speculators, you know, find their way back and, 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 you know, don't feel, don't feel completely crushed by the losses. There are various financial regulators that, that are out there to protect retail investors from losing money. And so, so if Tether collapses, then, then, you know, I think the, the operating environment for other stable coins is going to change. If maybe Tether survives in some form, or maybe Tether fails and the money goes to somewhere else, but either way, stable coins are going to have to follow different rules after that, because you can't operate an $80 billion, $90 billion business and have it collapse and then have there be no consequences for anybody afterwards. Regulators are waiting. They're, they're, they, would be, they would love to see a Tether collapse because it would mean an opportunity to impose tighter rules on what other people are doing. Definitely the dominant wing at the SEC, yeah, that they're in those camp. I did, to, I did speak to someone from the other side of the SEC, Commissioner Hester Peirce, and I asked her, she, I think money markets are you know, regulated securities because they convey some sort of promise. And I made this at stablecoins. They're kind of like money market funds. Like, why are they not securities? She said something to the effect of they're different. But, you know, if Donald Trump gets, gets reelected president and he looks strong in the polls, maybe that, you know, more libertarian free market side, they, they you know, the, the, the regulators gets pushed out and it could be a whole, whole new different world. So who knows? It's possible. When it happens, I'll come back on the show and we'll talk about it. Sounds good. Sounds good. Dan, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your, your view. We've got, well, of course, share a link in, in to the paper in the description. This, this really is a, a masterful piece of work. Anything else that you're working on that you've got cooking that you're excited about? Of course, your, your blog, Soon Partered, is, is a must read. But what, what else you got cooking? Thanks for saying so. Yeah. And, and people should follow the blog to, to know what I'm working on. And if you, read, if you read my blog over the last couple of years, then when you see this paper, you, you see a lot of the same ideas because that's where things bubble up for the first time. Coming up, you know, anyone who's interested in stablecoins, we're thinking also about tokenization, which is kind of a little bit more of an in aspect of the, of the crypto world, but that's tokenization is getting built in the mainstream financial world as well now. So we think there's some interesting things to say there. I've been following gathering data and trying to get a clear picture on offshore dollar markets in the Chinese financial system. Hmm. Uh, so there's actually a trillion dollars of dollar deposits in China, issued by Chinese banks, and the and the People's Bank of China reports monthly data about this stuff. So I've been trying to make some sense of that and see how that connects to RMB exchange rate policy and, and Chinese monetary policy. So I've got a couple of on the blog. There's a couple of initial thoughts about that, but I'm that's a, an ongoing project. I'm trying to understand it a little more deeply. And Dan, I've looked at data of foreign country, non-U.S. countries the percentage of their debt that is denominated in their domestic currency versus other currencies, namely dollars. And I, 
superficially, it appears that Chinese China does not owe a lot of dollars in terms of, but I'm wondering, is that maybe foreign bonds? And you're talking about domestic. So the dollars are both owned by and owed by Ch- China. So, so it nets. This is like, you know, let's imagine a manufacturing business headquarters in Shanghai. Uh, they got dollars coming in and they take their dollars down the street to, to you know, ICBC, uh, Chinese banks, and deposit a million dollars, $10 million in a Chinese bank. And those dollars exist entirely within China. So they're, they're borrowed and lent by, by Chinese nationals, businesses, and banks. And, but the numbers move around a lot. They fluctuate. And so that means that there's some monetary process going on. Maybe it's dollars moving offshore. Maybe it's moving back and forth between dollars and renminbi domestically within China. But the price at which that happens is interesting and it moves around and, and it seems important to understanding Chinese monetary policy. And that's all I'm prepared to say right now. So, so I'll come back on when I have, when I have more comprehensive uh, thoughts about that. Dan, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your, your views, and thanks everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.